0: What they say could have happened was that I there I had a deformity on the top of my femur, and so whether or not the deformity was like a result of training a lot, or I was born with the deformity and then training a lot kind of like made it like become worse and worse over time. It's it's really hard to say, mm-hmm. uh, but ultimately they said that you know it really wasn't like a surgery that was. Life or death. It was like you can either get this, you can either not get the surgery and like basically never compete again, or you can get the surgery and hopefully you should be able to compete again.
1: This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpree Skincare for Athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpree.com. Today on the Smart Athlete Podcast. I have a special guest who is still racing as a professional triathlete while somehow simultaneously is a PhD candidate at UC Boulder in fluid dynamics. Welcome. I said fluid mechanics, actually. Welcome to the to podcast today. Mike and Hey, thanks for having me. Did I get your last name right? Is it is yeah. a hard? Okay. I was like, I didn't think it was a hard H, but I, <laughs> I went for it. It, it. it goes either way. Um. So we were talking a little bit before we got started. Um, I asked you if you're still racing as a pro, and you said
0: technically. <laughs> so, so what's that all about? Yeah. So I mean, the definition of a professional triathlete it just varies so much from person to person. Mm-hmm. Like technically, I consider myself a professional from the fact that I literally just ra- I can race against the best people. Like mm-hmm. I can race for money. I can enter ITU races, um, that kind of thing. But to say that I am a professional triathlete from the standpoint that I make a living off of it is entirely false. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. And that seems to be something that comes up a lot. I think um,
1: Chris Douglas, who referred me to talk to you, I think he mentions that in the sense that, if I remember incorrectly, I think he said something like, um, "You know, I did not never think I would be like a professional, and I think professionals should make." You know, living from it, and that seems to be a pretty common theme. Like, if you're going to be a pro, you should make a living from it, or something along those lines. I don't necessarily agree. Uh, yeah, but it, it does seem to
0: come up somewhat often that, like, that interesting distinction. Yeah, no, it's definitely hard to it's it's hard to say um, exactly that distinction. I mean, just because that there really is not a fine line. Like, you need to make such and such amount of money. Uh, from a sponsor to be considered a professional, it's kind of mm-hmm. yeah. They, there's no there's no guidelines for that. So
1: I kind of think about it in terms of like anybody who has their elite license is a professional to me. Just because I mean, what we're dealing with as a sport from triathlon is like you're not dealing with basketball. You don't have the the audience to justify the salaries for. All of the athletes, like right. you would for you know basketball or other like major sports. So it's like you, you have the physical ability to compete at that level. It's just that, like you could be a professional curler, you know, but right. you're probably not going to make a living from it. Right. But you're still yeah. a professional because you compete at that. Like so that that's my bend, I guess.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. It's yeah. It all depends on how you feel. I feel like so. What do you um? Do you have any idea, like, what
1: percentage of the pro field you think makes their living just doing that? Like, they're not doubling anything else. They're not, you know, painting houses on the side. They're
0: just just racing. You know, it's really hard to say, and and I say that mostly because I think I know a lot of people that race professionally, and that is the only thing that they do to make money. But mm-hmm really, like, they might have, like, a financial income coming from somewhere else that they don't, but they're still not working, per se, okay. so it, that really makes it, like, a fine line as to, well, like, yeah, you are competing professionally as a full-time triathlete, but you're not profiting, like, you're not making money, mm-hmm. um, and, and, yeah, for whatever reasons that, that may be, it's, it's hard to say exactly, of like, maybe the people that I feel like are making, making a, making enough money so that they can live off just being a professional triathlete, maybe 15% of the people that would be in a pro field. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah. So
1: I know, um, I don't want to forget you, you said people are getting money from elsewhere. I want to come back to that, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, are you familiar with like Cody Beals blog on, you know, he lists like his race winnings and his expenses. And like, he's one of the few pros that is like, gives all that transparency about that. Are you familiar with that? I'm I'm not. For some reason, it vaguely sounds familiar, but I'm not entirely familiar with it. I was that. like, he's 70.3 and I think he's going to full, Versus, it seems like you do more ITU draft legal. So, you're both yeah. pros, but you're in two separate sports almost. So, yeah. I didn't know whether you would you'd run into that. Um, so, so I am I, I do want to go back to you said money from elsewhere. So is it I, I guess there's maybe a little bit of gossip, but is it like trust fund money? Is that like I made an invention and, and and I have money
0: coming in from that? Do you have any idea like what what that actually is for people? well, i I think that there's kind of two aspects that you can hit it from. There's like one where, sometimes like especially more so at the long course distance maybe mm-hmm. I, i'm not as familiar so I, I shouldn't say like i know this for sure but um sometimes people come into it at an older age mm-hmm. and so sometimes people worked a job say for a long time and then came into iron man a little bit later on and so they are taking maybe their savings account that they're um that they're using that they made money a while ago and okay. now they they've quit that daytime job to pr- pursue triathlon, but they're not making like enough money from the triathlon to say, be like living off of just triathlon. They're still living off like that savings. Right, so it's a net negative still. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So I think that would be, that kind of like is the, like the crux of it. Like whenever I say mm-hmm. that there's money elsewhere, but there's competing just full time and just training, okay. if that makes sense.
1: Okay. So, I kind of think of like, um, I was not good enough to be a professional, but I kind of, we're of a similar age, I believe. I kind of think of people like us that have been used successfully moving to the pro field, but like pretty much right out of college, like not having that history of work. So, that's why I was like, well, where's the money coming from? Because you really haven't had, you know, if you go, if you graduate college and you begin racing, you don't have a, you know,
0: for most people, a more work history to, you know, bank off of. Right. Yeah. No, definitely like coming out of college and trying to make it on your own and try like, especially paying off college debt. And I mean, that can be tough. So Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. So, so what's, I mean, like a a typical season as a
1: pro, how much you travel in? What, what, what's a, a typical season run? Like, like,
0: what do you, what's your schedule look like? So I would say it's been a while since I've had like a full year of just kind of like focusing on racing. I had, uh, two hip surgeries and so I hadn't, had not really raced the past two years. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, as far as like the race season goes, I mean, generally speaking, it starts in March ish, you know, depending on whether or not when you feel like you're ready to start racing. And then September, October, usually things start to die down and, typically there are sometimes like blocks like where you have like some racing blocks where you're racing maybe 3 times in 3 weekends other times throughout the year it's you know 5 or 6 weeks of just downtime from racing and you're focusing on training but um yeah i mean it very very much depends on like the type of racing that you want to do and which races you want to do really mm-hmm. so yeah so how i mean were you still racing heavily as you're working on your phd not as much anymore i mean i still train a good bit by most people's standards but not as much as i was whenever i was an undergrad Mm -hmm. Um, so i think that's just kind of the life balance choice that you have to make because i mean the like triathlon isn't like my primary focus necessarily. Um, so sometimes that has to get pushed off to the side and especially coming back from the injuries. Like I'm, I am limited into how much training volume I can do or Mm want to push my body to. Um, and so it, that kind of seems like a natural, um, outcome of everything.
1: Well, I saw on your blog and you you mentioned it, the the hip surgeries you had, I think (laughs) you mentioned it being non, Race related, so like, what? I mean, h- how do you get to the point where you need hip surgery if it's not training related?
0: Yeah, it it's really hard to say. I mean, because they don't have like a a time history of my like my hips over the past three to four years. What they say could have happened was that I there I had a deformity on the top of my femur, and so whether or not the deformity was like a result of training a lot, or I was born with the deformity and then training a lot kind of like made it like become worse and worse over time. It's, it's really hard to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, they said that, you know, it, it really wasn't like a surgery that was life or death. It was mm-hmm. like, you can either get this you can either not get the surgery and like basically never compete again or you can get the surgery and hopefully you should be able to compete again okay if that makes what, sense
1: yeah so you had um the like the bone
0: was deformed or yeah yeah it was a cam deformity and basically the the femur just wasn't entirely round sitting in the socket and so okay. like it it was banging up against my pelvis or i'm not entirely familiar with anatomy and that yeah, yeah, that's, so,
1: uh, that's fine was it like was it like an issue where you could you could feel like a clicking or or what did you even did you even feel anything besides like a pain
0: so it was mostly a pain uh with impact so anytime okay. I did did like an impact type of movement like particularly running mm-hmm. that was whenever I felt it the most if if I was, I didn't really feel it all that much swimming or even riding necessarily, but, um, like if I would push off the wall weird, whenever I swam like really hard and in a different kind of motion, it would, I could feel it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, um, I
1: think you said in your, in your post talking about the the surgery, like the doctor wanted you on the bike right
0: after the surgery. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty incredible. Um, this surgery that, I had done is fairly common now Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you look back like 15-20 years there this surgery was almost like a death sentence um, to someone's athletic career so it's and it's this type of thing that is actually advancing it and making it easier and easier for people to get this operation then still recover from it and one of the advances that people found was that you want to get that hip moving as quickly as possible after surgery. Mm-hmm. So it's not a case of, you know, resting it for longer is, is better necessarily. Like mm-hmm. the, for this particular injury, this particular operation, um, it actually, they find that it's way better to get that hip moving mm-hmm. in a safe way. Uh, but get it moving. Um, and that actually leads to better recovery. So I'm kind of curious. I,
1: I'm guessing that they did the surgery arthroscopically, like just yeah. like two pinholes. So anybody that doesn't know, um, I know a little bit about this because my girlfriend actually just had hip surgery um, <laughs> last year after I had surgery. Um, so arthroscopic surgery is like two very small incisions, and then they go in with little robot arms and do the work, you yeah. know, so that they don't actually actually have to open up the entire. Leg to get in there. It's much less invasive. Um, Did you end up having like a passive motion machine that you had to use to move your leg at night
0: or was it you're just good to go? I, no, I mean, I had it done in two different places and I didn't have a passive uh, machine um, necessarily. I think that was just basically what the bike was for. Okay. Uh, And so, but like, one surgeon had it a little bit more fixed with like a brace. The other surgeon didn't have the brace. Um, yeah, that was not nothing too drastically different between them though. So, so
1: from post surgery back to, I'll call it a normal workout schedule. But you know, you yeah. build back in. Like, how long did it take from you know surgery day to
0: all right, we're back into training? Yeah, it's it's been like a like an asymptotic approach to okay. full training so like it happened like immediately after surgery yeah I mean there's obviously some downtime I wasn't really doing much but within like mm, I don't know say two months by two months I was able to do like some decent riding like the low impact stuff so some decent riding some swimming um, nothing too hard but I mm-hmm. was starting to get into better and better shape but it and then I started running probably maybe three months after three or four months after the surgery. And, um, and, but that it takes a while to just like kind of, you know, keep on building back into it from there. So like I was able to start running, but it just took a while to get back up. I mean, I'm still not even running more than an hour. Um, Mm -hmm. and my surgery was, um, uh, a year and three months ago so yeah so now it's like I'm still like getting closer and getting closer to normal training but it's still not quite there yet so
1: and you I mean are you with within that hour are you still able to do so you want to go do tempo or you want to go you know do like a faster 800 interval or something or can you get up to speed
0: yes yeah, so I th- yeah I was a runner, so it's easier for me to get up the speed, but yeah. it's actually it's not in the moment that it hurts it's the post. and so okay. uh, so whenever I first started doing like a couple like workouts and I say workouts meaning like five by one minute tempo, like nothing drastic. Yeah. Yeah. like I would hurt for like two or three days okay. After and it's that's just the nature of how it needs to heal like you're like breaking things open and you're and it needs to reheal again it just takes a lot of time so okay so yeah I could I could go out and run probably pretty fast but I think that I would be in quite a bit of pain immediately after or like uh afterwards in like the evening time frame and the next day is it just a matter of sit on it do you ice it or
1: like is there any kind of like I don't say like extra activity you can do to to alleviate some of that? Or are you just sit sit and suffer?
0: That's no, actually moving it more and more is better and better. It's just like the impact is tough on it. And so that's kind okay. of one of the things that's hard to get back to full training. It's like every say extra thirty minutes of running I want to do that week, it requires like another you know, hour and a half or two hours of like exercises, kind of moving the hip around, keeping the the joint loose and making sure everything's healthy. So that's another reason why it's kind of like harder to get back in the training, like full training with that limitation. So it's effectively like, I'll call it the fifth discipline because the fourth discipline's transition. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: so instead of triathlon, it's it's a pentathlon now.
0: (laughs) amazing how it keeps on growing
1: yeah so it's, it's always something else and then you have recovery and then nutrition and it's just it's just like how do you keep up with it all right um, so I'm kind of curious about like I mean your history it seems like you've been doing triathlon like almost like you know like hunter Kemper started when he was you know tall enough to ride a bike
0: right and that seems to be pretty similar for you right yeah yeah pretty much I mean I started doing triathlon like like, I would enter, like, the kids' triathlons, like, the mm. little, ones. I you know, I swam on a summer team, I ran at the track every so often, mm. whenever I was younger, and I would just happen to do, like, hop in some of the kids' triathlon races, and, yeah, and so, yeah, I've been, I mean, doing it for quite a while, um, yeah, so, I think, yeah, I'd say, like, competitive to though, like where I really just primarily focused on like becoming a better triathlete, it wasn't until like the end of high school. So i like I was swimming and running um for my high school team and then I'd do like triathlon in the summer. Um but then like finally by my senior year of high school I decided to kind of relinquish a couple of things and just focus entirely on triathlon.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just like I do you remember like how you were introduced to the sport? It seems like a lot of people in the sport of transplants like me. Like I ran through college and then transplanted to yeah. triathlon. Not a whole lot of people are like you and Hunter that started when they were very, very
0: young. So, I mean, yeah. how do you get introduced to it
1: at, at that age?
0: Yeah, it was, I mean, mostly my dad. I mean, my dad still competes now, but he has been competing for a long time and it just kind of growing up and seeing him compete, it's kind of motivating to become a triathlete myself. Mm-hmm. So I would say that would be almost entirely the reason why I started at such a young age. Um, yeah, so.
1: And I think Chris uh, had said, I think I saw in your blog as well, you went to Penn State for undergrad, correct? Correct, yeah. And, and you did not like run for the school, but you participated in the, the triathlon club? Correct, yeah, correct, yeah. Okay, so my big question is, I think you're a fast enough runner, maybe even a fast enough swimmer, you probably could add scholarships at schools. So, like, how do you turn down? Like, where's the decision, or was there a decision about turning down scholarships to run somewhere or like go to a school versus you know continue to pursue pursue triathlon?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, honestly, I so um, I don't think that I was fast enough running or swimming to do that at a, like a competitive division one school, like a, right, right. like a, like a, uh, power five conference really. Right. And, and so, but I wanted to stay like within the state and because it's really hard to get scholarship money. And I also wanted to just, um, go to a school with good academics mm-hmm. and Penn state had great academics. They had a track record of having a good, a decent triathlon program. Like at least there's like a team there, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, my now some of my best friends are were on that team as well, and so like it was just a good fit as far as like well I can do triathlon, but I'm also going to be getting a good degree while going to a good school. So, okay, yeah. Um are they are they
1: um, picking up the the NCAA women's triathlon at Penn State? I haven't been following that too deeply, but I know like they're. Mm-hmm. Trying it out at schools, and yeah. it seemed like the club schools were kind of what they were focusing on initially.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah, schools are definitely picking it up. Penn State, I don't think is as mm-hmm. far as I'm aware of. Um, there's not a ton of Division One schools that are, but um, yeah, that's I I don't think Penn State is necessarily.
1: I'm not okay. entirely
0: sure. All the schools that are so. Yeah.
1: Um, so one of the things I think all, like a lot of endurance athletes deal with, and I saw tons of my teammates, I'm sure you're familiar with teammates that are this way is like dealing with burnout. Cause you have yeah. to put it so many hours. It's so repetitive. And, you know, considering you started from such a young age, like have you ever felt burnt out? Like how do you deal with that or how do you
0: avoid that? Yeah. I, it's tough to say. I mean, I think that I was competitive, but I wasn't like, overly competitive in the sense that I was like especially like through high school say I wasn't doing uh, you know three workouts a day through high school I think you know I'd do like you know nine maybe workouts a week mm-hmm. I was you know training what I felt was hard but I wasn't overworking myself mm-hmm. and then generally like all my coaches through high school were big proponents of just taking time off like absolutely nothing and I think that is a good way to just kind of reset every year and make sure that you aren't, you know, day in, day out for years and years and years just destroying yourself, doing the same thing, just taking that time off. And then whenever, especially in high school, like those few years, I would be primarily focused on like just running and for like during the cross country season Mm -hmm. and primarily focused on swimming during the swim season. And so I think that having that variation throughout the year also helped just avoid burning out. So, just a little bit of time. Yeah. Um.
1: This is another thing like Cody Beals talks about, and I kind of asked you a little bit about him, but yeah, not real familiar. And I spoke with um, Matt Bach, who whose episodes just came out in, in dealing with like um, pretty common for a lot of endurance athletes that are men and some women, like dealing with low testosterone. Have you ever? Dealt with that, or like that, like super fatigue that kind of
0: comes along with like hormone imbalance. No, I no, I haven't had anything quite like that. There's definitely been days I felt fatigued, but yeah, <laughs> I think we've all been there at some point or another.
1: Yeah, but, it's this like interesting line between trying to figure out like, am I fatigued because I've worked myself so far into a hole that now I have like hormone issues, or is it regular fatigue? And I think it's easy. You know, especially for most of those guys, it end up, turns out that they have issues, is like they write it off as just, oh, it's just normal fatigue. But right. Like, it seems to be something that's cropping up more and more. So, so something that I was, like starting to ask people about just because it seems like more common than you'd think it would be.
0: Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm not entirely sure I've really ever come across that necessarily i think mm. i think i've been able to like just know where my body's at enough so that i can avoid getting to that level of like chronic like really just absolutely destroyed mm. um so yeah luck, thankfully i've been able to mostly avoid that issue good deal um this is one
1: thing like you know we talked about being a pro and Earning a living, and, and you do have, or at least on your website, you still have some sponsors listed. Um, so I think there's kind of some mystery surrounding sponsors for like age groupers, and that they you know, they don't understand how that works. So I'm curious, like, at least from your experience, like, how does the the process go about finding sponsors or working with
0: sponsors? Um, you know, how's that relationship? Um, occur yeah uh usually the spot like usually it's more about like knowing someone and uh, getting in touch with them sending them email letting them know your credentials whether that's your athletic resume or your social media resume Mm
1: -hmm. that kind of
0: thing and usually you can get get sponsors i say sponsors pretty easily but what that sponsorship entails is can vary a wide range so like Mm -hmm you know, you can get a clothing sponsor. Is that clothing sponsor sending you a dozen shirts and tights or whatever? Probably not. They're probably giving you like 30% off retail, Mm -hmm. uh, which is like, yeah, technically that's a sponsor. But, I mean, as far as like making a professional triathlete, it's not really helping you all that much. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, usually what happens uh, like that I've seen is uh, sponsors – generally pick up athletes um with both a good athletic uh background good social media background but that first year or two may not necessarily be like a full-on sponsorship where they're giving you money um you know every year or bonuses that kind of thing they'll start off with like hey here's you know you try our product and then you keep you show that like you're an asset to us and then we'll continue on that sponsorship or give you more, um, with each passing year. Mm -hmm. And then other times it works the opposite. Sometimes, you know, a sponsor decides that they just don't want to sponsor Every sponsor as many athletes and you're just cut and you may not, may not have done anything wrong. You just, that's just kind of the nature that you were already at the bottom of the total pool Mm -hmm. and you just got cut. So. So
1: it's like, so I, I'm always curious about it just personally too. Since I run a couple of businesses, one of them being athletically focused. Yeah. um, And I don't sponsor anybody at the moment um, just for my own marketing reasons. But, you know, so I kind of think about it in both aspects. Like I am on the athletic side, I'm on, you know, the, the company side too. It seems like social media would be such a big deal now, you know, because so many sales take place online and ultimately, the idea of sponsorships is to, you know, convey a brand to new people and wind up, you know, selling product. Um, so it's like, here's like a, a seventh or eighth discipline for you is like de- dealing with social media, like learning how yeah. to garner an audience and and market to that audience without alienating them. And oh yeah, no, that's huge. Yeah, for sure. So the big question now, and I'll put you on the spot, is where's your social media presence like?
0: You know, you, you, I'm just giving you a hard time. (laughs) It's, uh, you know, like just, I mean, I, I don't know, just not interested in posting all my aspects of my life. I, I don't know, just kind of enjoy like not having to worry about that. It's definitely an aspect that I do not miss about, you know, more or less trying to make it as a professional. Like that's like just not who I am. Right. Like I just don't advertising myself. I mean, not that like I think that everyone that posts about themselves is like advertising for themselves. It's just right. like, it's just kind of my personality. I just don't like talking about that stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. Like, I don't know if I'm sure you've seen this where it's like, somebody will post about whatever product and it comes off very like salesy. And it's just yeah. like, do you even like the
0: product? Right. It's not authentic. You know? Yeah. like it, So,
1: I that's the other thing I think about too, is it's kind of almost, antagonistic situation where like say say I come to you and I say, Mike, I want to give you five thousand dollars if you'll, you post about my products. And you're like, Well, I hate your products, but I really want the five thousand dollars.
0: Right. And that's tough. That's yeah. tough. Right? Especially if you're like a, if you're an up and coming professional athlete and you really like want to make it and you see that opportunity, like, I mean more you're more than likely probably going to take that deal.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that's and I know, you know, again, come from the company side, like it's tough. At least for me, I can't speak for like the big brands. Yeah. Why is somebody pounding on my wall right now? <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Um, to <laughs> figure that out in a minute. Yeah. Um, so coming from the company side, it's like I know not everybody's gonna like what I make. That's okay. But right. it's like the people speaking about it, I have like a relationship with, I want them to like it too. Mm-hmm. So it's like you want to get the word out, but you also don't want to people to be disingenuous. Right. So you know, I can see from like I said, that both sides of that, that antagonistic coin where it's like, how do you find the right person that likes your products and would post about them, you know, without being paid? Right. And then the payments
0: just like you know, bonus on top. Yeah. No, so, yeah, that would be ideal, but I it just doesn't seem to happen quite that way all the time.
1: Yeah, no, and the, and that's fine. I mean, that's 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 business. It's just it's just a curiosity of how things work. And with with you know influencers being so big right now, that's like the big buzz term in all these marketing forums. You gotta find influencers. You gotta find influencers. It's like, do I? You know, the the since the idea is to try to find. You're trying to replicate word-of-mouth marketing, but yeah. you're paying for it, right? So, yeah. Um, so let's dive a little bit into the whiteboard behind you, <laughs> which is currently blank. Yeah, yeah. It could be filled with your research. So, fluid mechanics. I said fluid dynamics because I it just roll off the tongue. But fluid mechanics. So, so give us a little fluid overview. Studio, what yeah. What are you actually doing? What are you, What are you uh,
0: researching? Yeah, so we study fundamental just fluid mechanics for fluid dynamics problems. Um, It's a wide range of applications right now. Um, I mean, so like the primary one that I'm working on right now is more related to like buoyancy driven flows. And so, which I think most people intuitively get like say you have a smokestack and there's hot gases coming out. Well, that's a buoyant jet because the gases are hot. Hot gases are lighter than the surrounding fluid. Buoyancy mm-hmm. drives upwards, um, and mm-hmm. so we. So that's one kind of like you know application. Um, there's um, heat treatment processes that have like a high temperature like burner that you may like heat treat some kind of film. Um, There's also wildfires, which uh, my research group is a big part of trying to work and simulate those flows. Um, Yeah. And so, that's one of the primary things that we're working on right now. Um, So, kind of like I
1: talked with Chris, like, you know, what is it, are you just, I always have kind of a tough time with this. Are you researching the research or do you see like where you can start to apply what you're doing to, you know, actual fields.
0: Yeah, no, so we're, you can definitely see the application. Whether or not, like, you see the application, like, tomorrow someone picks up your research and and Mm -hmm. utilizes it in their um, real scale flow, not really, but, like, you can see where it becomes applicable um, in the future. And my group currently right now, we work on adaptive mesh refinement, which is basically a technique to um m- help simulate more realistic flows in a, um, a a like more realistic flow that isn't quite entirely just academic- for academic purposes if that makes sense um, okay yeah so so like I want to dive deeper into like what
1: you're doing yeah I'm like how do I like how do I get in there <laughs> <laughs> um so, and uh, I, you have to excuse me for forgetting, like the whole the 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 PhD, like I'll say academic track. Yeah. Um, to work on your dissertation, are you already started on that? Do you, you have like are you doing like the group group
0: research beforehand? Like, where where are you in your your process? Yeah. So I passed my uh, subject prelim preliminary exam, um, and so I still need to pass my preliminary research exam. Um, and so that preliminary research exam, usually you want to have done some research, but you're mostly showing that you're qualified to do research and you've, you've started to kind of poke away and make good progress and you are doing good things. Um, but you're not necessarily doing what you want for your thesis, um, per se. And so I'm only just finishing my second year right now. Uh, so, um, now I've, after I pass that, hopefully pass that research freedom, then we could then finish up some of the current work that's going on, and then my advisor and I would sit down and talk about a more just real, uh, real focus that we want to nail down over the next two years that is interesting and impactful for the community. And
1: you, any inkling so far, like what direction you're going, like are you like, oh yeah,
0: I really want to do this, or you have just no idea? Oh no! I we we definitely have an idea. Um, d- it's just these things kind of take a while um, mm. to mull over. Um, we know more or less where things are going to go. What the exact direction? Not entirely sure. Um, but we have a sense of where we want to go with the current research. Like things seem to be progressing well, and hopefully um, we can keep on progressing and. Make an impact. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, So I think the big question, and this is what we ask all five-year-olds, and I think you're still at that point. I mean, you're already a pro triathlete, so we, you know, I'm gonna give that to you, whether you make a living from it or not. (laughs) But, but, at least in my book, for what that's worth. I'll take it. Um, (laughs) So I mean, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's.
0: I mean, it's, this is definitely a hard question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I think as of right now, I think the being a professional triathlete and trying to make it in the sport becomes less and less appealing every day. Mm -hmm. Not that, not that I don't love it. I, I mean, that's the reason that I do it. I love competing and just the people that I've met through the, um, through the process is just has been really great. And I don't ever want to, um, you know, lose that. Um, but I also see not every case, but a lot of cases, it can be hard to transition from trying to just make it as a professional triathlete to transitioning to more of something that you want to do for the rest of your life. Cause Mm -hmm. most of us, you know, triathlon, it's not, you're not going to make it the full time of your life. Um, just competing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I I think being just a full-time professional triathlete, and that would be the only thing that I did, just doesn't seem all that appealing. Um, I really do enjoy doing research. Um, That's just one of the things that I enjoy doing, and seems that, like, I could, you know, pursue that for the rest of my life, and that seems way more interesting. Um, So, that Would probably be more or less where I see myself ending up being, but I don't ever see myself giving up in like just being done, uh, doing triathlon or doing sport.
1: Is there an ability, like, is there an option for you to find, I'll say, like a private research position, or are you going to be like have to you know, teach classes to also do research in like an academic
0: setting? Yeah, you don't have to. Um, so especially after you, you get a PhD, a lot of people get um, postdoctoral um, positions, which is basically a fancy way of saying just do research. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not that's still within the academic community. So a lot of times, a professor will hire a postdoc to um, to help do research, help push along research. Um and that's that's one option, but a lot of times also the industries and national laboratories require postdoc uh, positions as well. So okay. definitely, it's there's plenty of positions um, and things to do after you get your degree.
1: So it, I think I can remember this phrase right. I think often when I was doing undergrad, the the phrase "publish or perish" came around a lot. Yeah. Do you like? Do you experience that or like? You know, how how true
0: would would that be to you or does that hit home at all? You know, I see it um, a lot and people are constantly worried about that. But as long as you are making good progress with your research, I think things kind of fall out for themselves. Um, I don't think that as a graduate student, it's really perish necessarily. Like you should, you know, be working towards making a publication, making impact on the community, But, like, I don't, and and if you were going to graduate um, with your PhD, you're likely going to have one, two, maybe even a couple more than that uh, research papers that you published. Um, But, like, it also depends on what you're doing. Like, I know people that, you know, had to design their, uh, like, an entire experimental facility, um, and maybe they didn't necessarily write, like, three or four papers, but they laid the foundation for a lot of work to come, which is impactful for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mostly it happens. You see it more at like the professor level. Um, like if you're not publishing on a regular basis, I mean, you know, people look at that kind of oddly. Like you should be making progress, mm-hmm. for, like helping the community and stuff. So, one thing that you keep you keep mentioning, and I, I think of
1: almost academia sometimes as like. Um, people in an ivory tower working on their own problems but you you can I don't know how many times you mentioned four or five six times you keep mentioning like having an impact on the community so what I mean what does that actually look like
0: yeah I mean it's hard to say for a number of reasons like it depends on what you're doing um I think that You know, making an impact, like, it can come from, like, a various amounts of standpoint. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, so, you know, you could have, you could have, like, a very, very direct impact. So, there's a research group here at CU that is doing, you know, methane detection. Mm-hmm. So, they can detect methane leaks from faraway distances, and that way you don't have to be invasive into, like, go into and, like, you know, figure out if methane is actually there or not. You can detect it with a laser. So that has an obvious immediate impact on Mm -hmm. like the community, right? Because once you develop that tool, I mean, yeah, you might not produce like a ton of papers from it necessarily, but Mm -hmm. it's obviously impactful. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's like one way you might see it. And another is like developing, uh, you know, a computational tool, which is mostly the work that we do. And if once you develop that tool, then you can, utilize it to write a whole bunch of papers and you can just study the heck out of everything. Um, and like, but developing that tool for the community to use for their problems that you can see that as like an impact um, on the community as well. Okay. I mean, is that, is that like,
1: one of the things I talk about, like when I coach athletes, but it really applies to everything. I, I, I refer to it as like a bag of whys. Like you have a series of things that drive you, like um, your you know, your reason to compete. You know, maybe um, you want to prove somebody wrong, or you have you know aspirations of being the best, or things like that. Yeah. So I'm w- I'm curious about like your what I would refer to as your bag of wise for like research. I mean, is there is there something that you know in, like inspires you to move forward with the research? Like I said, it, it just seems like that that impact um, seems like, so crucial to, like, what's coming, like, out of your brain. So, I'm trying to figure out if there, you know, if there's something behind that, if, if um, yeah, so, it's kind of, something
0: kind of inspired that, that idea for you. I, I just think it's fun. I mean, okay. it's, I mean, it's really cool seeing, like, you know, you do research to answer a question, and, like, and it's typically, hopefully, a question that the community has not already answered, and, That's cool, right? Like you, Mm -hmm. you can see, you can show that you did research and you were able to answer this question. um, How definitive that answer is? Well, I mean, that's always up to the scientific community. But um, yeah, that I mean, I just think that that is really interesting, at least to me. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, So I'll ask you the same thing I ask
1: everybody, and if I don't know whether you watched Chris' episode or not, but I ask everyone if they can only choose one thing to eat for recovery for the rest of your life,
0: what do you choose? I think most of the people that know me would probably know the answer to this, but most definitely pizza. I could eat that for all the meals <laughs> for the rest of my life with no regrets.
1: <laughs> see, and, and see, now I have to give you a hard time because how do you eat pizza? Like, I feel like there's this idea about – and I, I don't, I'm not like shaming you, but just, there's this idea about, there's no shame I mean, you're a professional athlete, you know, like how can you eat pizza for, for recovery? Why aren't you eating a salad? Like, why is pizza your jam?
0: I, it's hard to say. I just <laughs> love, I just love pizza. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I mean, it's not like I like dip my pizza in grease and eat it for every meal. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's. Usually, I like whenever I make them. There's vegetables on it of sorts, of any variety. There's some sort of meat and cheese, and it seems like overall, it's it's not like terrible for you. Mm-hmm. At least I don't think it is. I'm still alive, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As our, our slow and inexorable march towards death, we're
1: like, oh, I'll just eat some pizza in the meantime. It'll it'll help me feel better.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: That took a dark turn there. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Mike, if uh, people want to follow you in your somewhat infrequent postings, where can they find you?
0: Um, Instagram or Facebook are usually the best ways. Definitely not Twitter. <laughs> not Twitter. <laughs> uh, what's your What's your handle? And what's your website? Uh, it's at milkme mike for my Instagram, and uh, I think my website is mike mehan racing uh, at wordpress dot wordpress. I'll I'll double check that and it'll be on the screen.
1: Uh, before yeah. we go, I do have to ask you what what's the deal with the Instagram handle? Uh, it was it's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too, too long to share for now. All right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Take care.